Ephesians chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. Um, up here on the screen, we're going to have a picture. Um, it's a picture of what was my first car. We got that one? There it is. Um, that is a 1989 Cutlass Supreme SL. Um, that car um, was my sister's car. And when I got it, it was what we would call a piece of junk. Um, about two weeks before, three weeks before the car became mine, my sister rear-ended somebody. Um, so the hood was crunched up a little bit. Um, see, here's what happened. I wanted a Camaro. And, and you know, I was 16. And I thought, man, Camaro would be great. My cousin had a Camaro and there's a few other people who had Camaros. I was like, man, I want a Camaro. So that's what I wanted, right? Well, my sister graduated from West Georgia um, that December after I turned 16. So dad got her a new car and gave me um, this one. And, and the, the ceiling was kind of falling in. So I had stapled it up in a few places. Uh, the gear shifter was broken on it. Um, it was supposed to be this, you know, on the column, you go to shift gears. It was supposed to be nice where you could reach up there. Well, there was about three and a half inches that you could grab. And if you weren't careful, it would cut your hand. Um, so, you know, sometimes you just have to wear like gardening gloves to put the car in gear to drive. Um, it had this digital um, speedometer that was off by about 13 miles an hour. The reason I know that is because I got a ticket um, and I was like, there's no way I was going, um, th th there's no way that that was right. Well, we put it next to my dad's truck and drove side by side and it was off by 13 miles an hour. Um, so it wasn't my fault that I got the ticket. Um, I was just going, the gas gauge didn't work. The car was a piece of junk. Man, I, I was like, dad, come on, seriously. Well, I played bass. Some of you know that I played bass. I played here every now and again. I played bass in the show choir um, pit band. So, so we had, you know, the, the chorus at, at the high school that does all the dancing and the choreography and everything. Um, they wanted to have live music, so I played bass for them. And it was getting close to Valentine's Day that year, and there was a big Valentine's fundraiser banquet that the show choir was doing. And we had to leave high school and go to the college in town because that's where the banquet was going to be and have a dress rehearsal at four o'clock. Now, there was a girl in the show choir that I kind of had a crush on, right? And, and so, you know, I'm a little awkward in some social situations. Um, believe it or not, that can be a little awkward. And, and so I, I was sitting there thinking, okay, sometimes I would like to ask this girl out. I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to do that. And it came to that day and she asked me, we we're leaving school. She said, hey, are you going over uh, to ABAC for a rehearsal? I said, yes. Can I ride with you? Well, here's the thing. I'm driving my sister's car. Um, you know, this, this is my sister's car. So yeah, you can ride me. As a 16-year-old, it was like, no. So we got in the car and we were driving to the college. In order to get to the college, we had to pass my dad's office. Now, I had this ongoing conversation with my dad about the car that I actually wanted, which was this car. Not this one, that one. That is a 1989 Chevy Camaro IROC Z, 350, 327, Borg Warner rear end. Man, that thing would move. Man, that thing would be the 2001, 2002 Mustang GT, hands down. Here's how I know. As we were passing my dad's office, that car was parked in front. So I was able to say, <laughs> remember I told you to drive my sister's car? That's my car. Of course, she didn't believe me until we pulled in and went and talked 
to my dad. See, dad had made the arrangements. We had this ongoing conversation and we were going to use money that I'd been saving and a few other things to come together. And we knew this car was for sale and he was going to surprise me with it. He didn't know I was going to be driving past his office, but I was able that day to demonstrate what happens when we actually talk to our father about what we need and what's going on in life. Most of us are riding around spiritually in a 1989 Cutlass Supreme SL when God has promised us something bigger and something greater. Maybe Camaros aren't your thing. Maybe cars aren't your thing. And I'm not telling that if you go pray to God, he's going to give you a Camaro. Trust me, I've been praying that one for about 10 more years. But when we go to God, we see what he has for us when we talk to our Father. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Ephesians chapter 3. And if you found your place, I would like to invite you to stand with me as we reverence the reading of the word of God together. Now, um, this is a normal practice that, that I ask you guys to do to stand. It comes out of the book of Nehemiah. They were, they were rebuilding the temple and they found the word of God. They started reading it and the congregation stood to honor God. So, so that's why we do this periodically. But here's what we find starting in verse 14 of Ephesians 3. Paul says, for this reason, I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. I pray that he, God may grant you to the riches of his, according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power from your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the length and width, the height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses all knowledge so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we think or ask according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. The majestic and powerful name of God. The pure and undefiled love of Christ. The salvation that we have together is why we are here, Lord. Because you've given us hope because you've given your son. You gave your son because you determined before the foundation of the world that you would redeem us, that you would save us, that you would fix the brokenness of our sin. And Lord, I thank you that so many of us have come to faith in you, have trusted you. I pray, Father, that now we would see the weight of what Paul prays as being true in our lives, that we would understand and that we would see and that we would experience all that you have for us because we've looked to you. Demonstrate your power this morning, Lord. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This passage of scripture kind of call, closes in the interruption that Paul has put into, this, into the text. Last week, we started in chapter three and we were looking at basically a synopsis and kind of a rundown, a recap of what happens in chapter two. All of this stems from verse one, chapter one, verse three. 
that God desired to bless us with every spiritual blessing. And the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are this theological exposition. This is going into the deep theology of how God determined to save us and the links that he would go to in order to accomplish our salvation. And we get into chapter two and we see the dividing wall, the barrier that's been broken down racially, ethnically, economically, in all areas that that man-made barrier that Christ broke down because he established peace between us and God so that we can have peace between us. So whether you're a Georgia or a Georgia Tech fan, you can get along. You know, whether, whether you like, whether you like uh, UEFA, Bundesliga, or MLS, you, or COPA, you can get along. It does not matter where you are. We can get along because we have this common unity and bond in Christ Jesus. And so last week, Paul starts this prayer. He says there in chapter three, verse one, for this reason, because of what happened in chapter two, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he starts jumping with joy at what he's just talked about. He's so excited about the gospel and what the gospel accomplishes and how we are transformed that he just stops his prayer to say, remember, this is how awesome God is. And now we pick it up this morning in chapter four, in chapter three, verse 14, with him re-entering his prayer and saying, for this reason, because of all these wonderful works of God in our salvation, for our benefit, for our hope, for our peace, for our unity, I bow the knee. What Paul is doing is demonstrating an exercise of faith on behalf of the Gentile believers there in Ephesus. Now, I want you to know right now up front that you will not find the word faith anywhere in our passage of scripture. We just read it out loud. So you're like, okay, Evan, you're, you, you usually kind of tie it a little tighter than that. Why are you getting faith from Paul is praying, and I submit to you that faith is best demonstrated in how we pray, how we go to God. The reason most of us are walking around spiritually anemic, spiritually sleepy-headed, and spiritually uh, unaware of what's going on is because we haven't spent time in prayer. Prayerlessness is a lack of faith. Prayerlessness is saying, I got it. But instead, Paul uses faith and he looks at this passage of scripture, we look at this passage of scripture together and see that faith shows me where I must turn. You and I have the opportunity to turn somewhere that is above us, beyond us, and far, far, far more capable than anything that we have together. And Paul shows us how he turns to God. Look at what he says. For this reason, I kneel before where? The Father. Prayer is going to God, the God, the true God, the only God with the understanding that God, you're all I have, you're all I need and you're the only one that can do this. That is the full emptying of ourselves. When do we pray? Some of us pray in the morning, some of us pray in the evening. Some of us only pray when we get in a pinch, right? Some of us pray when we're driving down the interstate and we see the cop over there like, oh Lord, please don't let him come after me. I know I was speeding. If you just let me get out of getting this ticket, I promise you I'm gonna go to South America, I'm gonna go to Africa, I'm gonna go to India to serve you, Lord. Just don't let me get a ticket. That's how we pray, right? Do we mean it? Obviously not because you're all here and you're not over there. 
Look what Paul says. Paul says, for this reason, for the reason of what God has accomplished, I go to God. I turn to him because it is only God who could accomplish what the gospel shows to be true. What is that? That he loves us, that he chose to adopt us, and that we are his kids, regardless of where we grew up, who our parents were. Regardless of what our sin was, he covered it. He forgave it. He, he drew us in. Now think about for just one second with me, just a second, just a quick second. Doesn't that alone cause you to desire to talk to this God if he could do that? I, I know what's in my past. I know what I wrestle with on a day-to-day -day basis. To know that God still loves me and God still wants me to walk with him, that should compel us all to desire a little bit more of walking with God, right? I mean, maybe you're holier than I am. That's okay, you know? We're all on this continuum of holiness, trying to grow in our Christ-likeness. But that's what God's done for us. And look what Paul shows us in here. He shows us ultimately what God does. He says, from whom every family on earth and heaven and earth is named, I pray that he may grant you. Look at this condition of his prayer. It is for God's provision in the life of the believer. And we're gonna spend some time talking about this provision. I believe that Paul submits to us two things that God provides and then four reasons why God provides those things. So let's look at what God's provision is because this is all a prayer that God would grant us something. You're gonna hear some preachers and some pastors and some teachers of some sort of version of Christianity tell you that when you pray and you ask God for financial blessing and for wealth and, and prosperity and health and all this stuff, that God is obligated because of your faith to give you that. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. God's not obligated to us. God made a promise, so he's obligated to himself to fulfill it, but it is in the context of chapter one, verse three, that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Spiritual blessing. And sometimes the spiritual blessing takes on a physical presence and we see it physically in this life and see it, we see it right here. But sometimes it is just the glory of God manifest in our life and that's what carries us through. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, I pray that he grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. The first thing that God provides to us is spiritual strength. God provides for us spiritual strength. And I love the way Paul describes this provision. He does it according to what? According to the riches of his glory. You remember a few weeks ago now, it's been about three months ago, we were in chapter one and we saw over there in the first part of chapter one that it was according to the riches of God that he did a few things. Look with me if you would. If you need to turn the page, go ahead. If you just look across the margin, do that. It says that we have in verse seven, Chapter one, verse seven, we have redemption through his blood, the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our trespasses. How? According to the riches of his grace. Paul is once again drawing on the riches of the grace of God according to those riches. And if you remember, we talked a little bit about computers that day. If you, was, if you weren't here, it's okay. You can go to fbcfairburn.com and click on media and you can find all these and you can see where we've been in the book of Ephesians over these last couple of months. But here's what we get to in this. Paul shows us that God saved us according to God's riches. See, according to means that it didn't break God's bank to save us. 
According to means that God lavished upon us grace after grace after grace. And no matter what our sin was, God still had more grace than that to save us because he has abundantly wealthy in grace. If I saved you according to my riches, you'd get about 50 bucks worth of saving. That's not going to carry you very far. 50 bucks won't get you a full tank of gas now, unless you have a Prius. 50 bucks won't fill up your, car, your, 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 your grocery basket at the store. 50 bucks isn't going to go very far. That's according to my riches. But according to the riches of God, no matter where your failures are, no matter where your weaknesses are, look at what he says in verse three now. I pray that you, because of your faith in Christ, you've been made new, you are his child, that you would see the strength that he provides. Everything in your life drains you spiritually. Everything. Your marriage, your kids, your job, your health, your political affiliation, even driving through traffic in the Atlanta area drains you spiritually. Unless you're really, really holy, driving in traffic in Atlanta drains you spiritually. Everything that is part of the world around us is ultimately aimed against us and against what Christ Jesus has done for us. My wife was sharing with me just this morning uh, about an article she noted online in the last couple of days where GQ magazine has labeled this uh, one of the most worthless books to read. It's the only religious work that was on their list. And the question was like, well, if you're gonna write off religion altogether, that's fine, but why just the Bible? That's validation for why we believe what we believe. The world doesn't care. Uh, Satan doesn't care if you worship through Muhammad or through Buddha or through Hindu or Shintoism or if you just worship because yourself and other people around you. He wants you to look against the spiritual strength that God provides. That's the world where you live. That's the world where our students are in school. That's the world where you are at work. That's the doctor's offices you go into. That is the grocery store where you shop. The world is bent against your spiritual strength. And God, so Paul knew. Paul knew that if it was that case in Ephesus, if it was that case because of our human condition, that we must pray to see the provision of God's spiritual strength that he gives us. Some of you would rather have a little physical strength some of you might rather have a little financial strength. Some of you might rather have a little bit of social strength. But all of those things are going to fail you at some point. So we go to God for spiritual strength. Not only do we get spiritual strength, notice what else he says he provides. He says, I pray um, that you be granted according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. The provision of the indwelling of Christ. Man, think about the indwelling of Christ. We talk a lot about, man, you invite Jesus into your heart and you gotta open up your heart to Christ. You gotta give your heart to Jesus. I want you to think through what it really means to have Christ indwelling in you. Or we can nuance it a different way and say the spirit of God, because we've been baptized by the spirit, the spirit indwells us. I believe in a Trinitarian God. I believe in God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Three, all in one, somehow, some way. I don't have to uh, break it down exactly to figure out that that's what God has given us and that's what we need. But I also know that if that's what's in me, then my life will be markedly different. 
And my responsibility is to live as though that is what's gone on inside. See, sometimes we're riding around in that cutlass supreme with our hand cut from the gear shifter and the stapled up ceiling and we're forgetting that God has given us a greater power, a greater strength because he's placed his son within us. Think about that, how that compels us to live. Think about how that shifts the way we step out into the world each and every day to know that Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God, God the Father has placed his stamp, his seal, his mark on us because we're adopted as his children. That carries a little bit different weight, right? And so Paul says, I pray because he has brought us together, because he has brought us into unity, because he has assembled something here and adopted us as his children, I pray that we just live in accordance to that. I pray that we see the power of what God's provided. I pray that we see the majestic name of Christ Jesus within us and that we live in accordance to that. Why does he do this? Look at what he says in verse 17, verse 18. No, 17 at the end. I pray, here we go again with a prayer, the exercise of faith and prayer, that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. And to know Christ's love that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Right there in those two verses, two and a half verses, we get these four things that God, reasons why God has provided. Why does God provide spiritual strength? Why does God place Christ Jesus right within us? First is so that we may be grounded. Your translation may say, where my mind says, um, that you being uh, rooted and firmly established might say, so that you can be rooted. It's because we need to be grounded. Now, I'm not talking about like punishment grounded. You know, teenagers, they hear grounded and they think, oh man, I can't see my friends for a week. I'm gonna take my phone away. I'm gonna take my video games away. You know, I'm gonna take all of life away for that one. Adults, come on, think, think with me just remember. You remember when you were a teenager, right? If you were grounded for a week, it was the end of the world, wasn't it? Our teenagers are like, yeah, it's the end of the world. I can't go an hour without my phone in my hand. I can't go two hours without my friends. It's not the end of the world, teenagers. I promise you it's not. Everybody that's older than you in this room lived through it. But that's not what Paul's saying. It's not saying, okay, I want you to know Jesus so that you can live life on restriction for the rest of your life. I want you to know Jesus and I'm praying that God gets a hold of your life so that you can be miserable and shut up in your room for all, no. He says there that you would be grounded in a way that establishes you and roots you firmly. Now, you can go out to your yard this afternoon. I want you to do this exercise because it's, it's really gonna, I'm not talking about jumping jacks or push-ups. I'm talking about this just little simple exercise. Go out there and, and find a piece of grass and reach down, pick it up out of the ground. And then I want you to walk over here to a tree. If you don't have a tree in your yard, go to your neighbor's yard. They're not gonna mind. I'm not gonna ask you to hug the tree. I'm gonna ask you to go over there and try to pick the tree up out of the ground. One of them's gonna be easier than the other. 
because of the root system. I believe when Paul writes this, he has in mind Psalm chapter one. Psalm chapter one talks about the blessed man. It says, how blessed is the man that does not walk in the way of the wicked or take the advice of the scoffers. Rather, he day and night meditates on the law, on the word of God. And then it goes on and says, he's gonna be like a tree that is planted beside the stream so that its leaf never withers. You know what happens when you go without rain for a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks here in Georgia? Everything starts to shrivel up and turn brown and die, right? It starts to look more like a little bit of oasis. And so, so like our yard, man, we had nice new, new yard last time. We bought a new house when we moved down here. So we had nice new grass in that yard, but it got really, really dry. And that new grass did not take root. And so it kind of withered up and started to die. And it's got some patches and holes in there that I'm hoping fill back in this year. But see, that tree that is planted by the stream in Psalm chapter one, it never runs out of the moisture and the nutrient that it needs. So it roots, goes down and deep and deep. And it says so that it flourishes. Its leaf doesn't wither. Its fruit never misses a season because it has a continual source and it's able to grow and grow and grow. That's what Paul says. Paul says, my duty right now is for you to see that the world around you is living in spiritual blindness and there is spiritual warfare going all around you and God provides spiritual strength so that you can stand strong so that when the waves come against you, when the wind comes against you, when the storm comes against you, you don't fall over, you're rooted and firmly grounded. So that you're not blowing a tire, running on balds when God's trying to give you the strength and the sustenance to carry on, to be rooted and grounded. Look what else he says. Not just to be rooted and grounded, not to be just grounded, but so that you would be able to comprehend. He says in verse 18, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length, width, height, and depth of God's love. See that word comprehend takes under the understanding uh, the idea of understanding to the fullest see there are a lot of things about spirituality and faith that are really hard to comprehend like why would God save us why would God sacrifice his own son for us my oldest son sitting right up here and I love you guys but I'm not going to sacrifice him for y'all not as his father, not in his life. I, I can't imagine the excruciating emotion that, that God had to undergo and know that he was sending his own son to die for us. That's hard to comprehend. And further, it's hard to comprehend how one man under, under the authority of God, given by God, God himself in the flesh, could take on all of our sin. You ever, you ever change the air filter on a car? You change the air filter on a car, what it does is it tries to clean the air a little bit so that what is brought through the engine to bring combustion so that your car will go to make it a little bit cleaner air and get some of the pollutants and everything out. See, see, you, you, you filter it for a while, but you know, every 12,000 miles or so, you're supposed to change that air filter. That's what they say. Leave one in for about 100,000 miles. Pull that air filter out and see all of the disgust and all of, all, of, all of the grime and all of the other exhaust and dirt, everything that gets caught, the bugs, the grass, everything gets caught up in those air filters. It's kind of gross. But that air filter still let a lot of impurities into your engine. It can't get it all. But the blood of Christ does. How does that, how does that 
compute. It's so hard to comprehend. But Paul says, I pray that you would see the love of God, the blessing of God, that you would see the power of God and that in doing so, you'd be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height, the width, the length, all of this. I love what he says here. He says, comprehending the length and the width. I believe he has in mind Psalm chapter 103. Psalm chapter 103 talks about the, the wonderful love of God that removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. And I love that he says the east is from the west and not the north from the south. See, if you were to go north, right? Is that north? We'll say that's north. We're gonna go north as far as we can and we're gonna get to this point that's called the North Pole and when we get to the North Pole and we keep going, guess what direction we're going? South. And we're gonna keep going south all the way down that way to the other side of the world and we're going to get to this other point called the south pole and we're going to keep going guess what happens we're going north but instead what he says it separates from the east and the west because you know we can start going west west and we go west and west and west and west and west and west and we can wrap the world infinity times and we're always going west or we could go this way we go east east and we can wrap the world east, 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 infinity. We're never going west. East and west never touch. You can go as far beyond. And that's what God's done. That's the love of Christ, the length and the width. But he also says the height and the depth. Psalm 103 talks about how as far as the heavens are above the earth, so far is your love for us. Oh, man. See, the, the closest planet to us, as far as I know, is Mars. Tell me that knows science a little bit better than me. Probably correct me on that. It's going to take a couple of years. If we were to get on a spaceship right now and go, it'd take a couple of years to get to Mars. And if we decide we we're going to go to Jupiter, it'd take a few years. And if we decide we we're going to go to Saturn, all of us would be dead before we got there. Those are the closest ones. But you look out and you see all the stars in the sky. And scientists will tell us that that's just part of our galaxy and we're just one of a bunch of galaxies. How they know this stuff, I have no idea. But we could never reach the next closest star past the sun in our lifetime. And higher than that, deeper than that is the love of God. And Paul says, I pray that you would comprehend so this goes back to the strength. The comprehension is part of the strength so that we would be able to stand in the face of a wicked and sinful world with the true hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he goes on and says, it's not just so that we would be able to have, um, that we'd be grounded or comprehend, but he says in verse 19, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that we could experience the love of Christ. That we could experience love, man. If you're married, if you've ever had a girlfriend, a boyfriend, you ever had your heart broken, you know what that love experience is? Call it puppy dog love, you know, in middle school and high school. They don't use books anymore, but let's just rewind back then when we still use books in school and not like Chromebooks and computers. You'd, you'd write your crush's name on your book cover or whatever. You'd have like, like it'd be like Evan and Christy forever. E-H, heart, C-W. You know, you got that puppy dog love and you just think about him all the time, right? And then you get, it, get married and you got that love and that, that first year of marriage, like, okay, a little bit different than I thought it was gonna be, but I still love him. 
You fast forward to year 50, you're like, it's a miracle we didn't kill each other. We love each other. You got that love, right? You've experienced that love. See, the word Paul uses here, where he says to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, the word that he uses for know is not just a head knowledge, but it is an experiential understanding. See, I know what it's like to ride a roller coaster at Six Flags because I've been on one. And I can tell you all about it, but if you've never been on a roller coaster at Six Flags, it's going to fly right over your head and be like, well, that sounds like a lot of fun, but I don't know what it feels like to have the wind rushing in my face and to go upside down and go, oh, as you're going through there. I just don't know because I've never done that. You don't have the experience. Some of you have experiences that I never had, but you know something deeper because you've been through it. Some of you have gone through tragedy. Some of you have gone through the peaks and the mountains of joy that I've never experienced in your life. But you'd have this knowledge. And Paul says, I pray that you would be able to wrap yourself with a knowledge of Christ's love that surpasses what goes on in your head because you've lived in it. That is the hope and the joy that the world needs. That is the hope and the joy that the church needs. I'm, my heart breaks to think of men and women, boys and girls, that sit on church pew after church pew after church pew, hearing all these great things about Jesus and about God, but never experiencing the love of God because they've never turned their lives over to Christ for lordship and salvation. Oh, but if you have, and you've tasted that joy, that's why it says, taste and see that the Lord is good experience the love of Christ with a knowledge that goes beyond what's in your head to something that encompasses your full life. That's what gives you the strength to stand. That's what undergirds you and helps you to grow those roots down to know what Christ's love is. And he says also so that you can be made full. Look at this. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. To, to be filled right now each one of us is striving to fill our lives with something with something friends status money substance relationship immorality and, and they're all going to leave us empty Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, one of the wealthiest kings, writes in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. He had tasted the finest wine. He had seen the most beautiful women. He had everything that this world could offer. And he says, it's all worthless. It all crumbles like dust. And Paul says, I'm offering something through Christ Jesus. What God has offered is the fullness of God. Anybody ever gone to the, to the mall and eaten Chinese food? You go and for like, you know, they're always handing you a toothpick with like some chicken or some something on it. And, and you go and you eat it. And you're like, man, that's good. So I'm gonna buy that. And so you buy it. Man, they, pl- man, they pile your plate full. You got noodles and rice and whatever kind of combination of meat you've got on there. And you eat and you eat. And after about 30 minutes, you're like, oh my goodness, it's so good. I'm so full. And you kind of, you walk out to your car like a lady that's about to give birth. You're going, oh, you know, and you get out there to your car. Sorry, ladies that have given birth. Um, uh, you, you get out there to your car and you drive home and you get home. You sit down for about 30 minutes. You say, Man, I'm kind of hungry. 
And I, I, I know I just ate that big old plate of food, but I'm kind of hungry. That's what the world is. It is something that promises to fill you up. The book of Jude says that they are waterless clouds. They promise rain, but nothing ever comes because there's nothing sustaining. And Paul says, I want you to know the fullness that comes of a life in Christ, the fullness of God. Some of you are running on empty right now because you've never experienced the fullness of God. Some of you are running on empty right now because you have seen God, you've seen Christ, you know you're his child, but you've not dove into the depths of who God is through prayer. That's why Paul says, faith shows me where to turn because I'm turning to God who alone is able to accomplish this. I'm going to him in prayer because it's through prayer that I exercise my truest faith in God. It causes us to evaluate our prayer life. It causes us to evaluate the warfare around us and how we respond to the world because of what God has done and how we engage him in prayer. But here's the other thing that Paul shows us, and that's that faith allows me to respond in praise. I love this aspect of Paul's prayer. Look at what he says. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. He's saying, look guys, look what God has done. He's offered this. He's provided this to strengthen you, to give you Christ for these reasons. So let's praise him. Let's jump for joy. I believe the most exciting part of the church worship service should be when we've heard the word of God preached, when we've, when we've spent time praising, God, and we get to like the culminating, the invitation, the end, where we can say, yes, that's who God is. Yes, that's what's in my life. Yes, that's what's come to me through my faith in Christ. Yes, I am his child. Yes, I'm excited. Yes, I want to jump for joy. Yes, my faith is real in him. If you were looking for a place to say amen, it was right there. Let me try it again. Yes, this is exciting. Yes, this is what's going on in my heart. Yes, this is who God is. Yes, this is my faith is real. There we go. We got it that time because of what God has done. Look at the praise he offers. He says there to him who is able. Why? Because only God has a power. God alone has the power. There is a definiteness to this hymn. It's not to anyone It's not to some obscure thing. It's not even to something false. It is to him, God alone, the father, the one before whom he knelt to begin with, that he says he alone is able. I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know what struggle you have, but only God is able to provide the strength you need to overcome. I don't know what ails you. I don't know what plagues you. I don't know what fears you have. I don't know what sin struggle you personally have. Only God is able. And look at what he says. He's able to do what? Beyond and above all that we ask or think. The reason it doesn't happen is because we don't think he will. We, We don't think he can. That is why prayerlessness is the ultimate sign of a lack of faith in God. We don't think God can handle it. We don't think God will do it. So we try to take it on ourselves when he says, but it's him. He's the only one that's able. And it's not that he's able to like, you know, kind of handle a little bit. He's able to do above and beyond. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? He told us to go that second mile. Well, God's already accomplished well beyond mile two. 
God alone is the one who can do it. What we think or what we ask. So we glorify him alone. Look at verse 21. To him, to God. To him be the glory, where? In the church and in Christ Jesus, where? To all generations, for how long? Forever. Forever. When all of this is over, he still remains. When everything in your life collapses, he still remains. When everything in your life is built for his honor and his glory, he remains. When you pass from this earth, he remains. When we're called up to meet him in the sky and we go on into glory with him forever, he remains. Why? Because he alone is worthy of praise. So let's go to our father and celebrate his name.